If you don't have a Bible, why don't you go ahead and raise your hand and keep it raised high so that our ushers could see you and hand you out a copy of God's Word. And if you are receiving a copy of God's Word that we're handing out to you um, and you don't own one for yourself, go ahead and keep it and, as a gift from us to you so that you can understand and grow in the knowledge of Jesus. And then also, if you have the Bible that we're handing out, we're going to be on page, Isaiah uh, 65 is page 403 in your Bible um, if you don't know where Isaiah is. If, if you have your own Bible and you don't know where Isaiah is, just go to the table of content and it says Isaiah and go to that one, and then we'll be Isaiah 65. So let me, let me give you um, where we're going to be at this morning and what we're going to do for the sake of where we're going. Um, what I want to be able to do is just kind of recap real quick here. Um, we started this series, and we titled it Return of the King because we wanted to center Advent on what majority of the Christian church in history had centered Advent on. And so let's step back. Advent meant coming, and it means arrival. And so normally we look back to the birth of Christ and we celebrate his birth, which we'll do that on Christmas Eve. But what the church has been doing for centuries is actually looking forward to his second advent, the arrival of coming of the king. And so we wanted to join in with that and talk about his kingdom that is coming. And so week one we talked about how his kingdom is near. And that was the title and that was the big idea of that first week, that his kingdom is near. Last year, Benjamin came and talked about how mine is the kingdom, ultimately how Jesus is kingdom, it's his. And he's the one what the kingdom is all about. And in keeping with that thread, we're going to talk about today, thy kingdom come, which many of us are familiar with as praying the Lord's Prayer, but God's kingdom coming. And then next week, we'll look at the forever kingdom. But for today, we'll look at the picture of the coming kingdom. And then we'll, we'll look at the practice of the kingdom. And then lastly, the person of the kingdom. So the picture, the practice, and then the person of the kingdom. So if you guys are with me in Isaiah chapter 65, we'll start in verse 17, the picture of the kingdom. Isaiah writes, For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, for the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in, the, in that which I create. So here's Isaiah, and you're going, okay, what is he talking about? Well, let's understand the context first. Isaiah is talking, if you were listening, looking at the video, Isaiah is talking to a people who had once been exiled, meaning the prophets spoke, and they spoke, and they spoke about repentance towards God, and the people did not repent. And so God allowed two kingdoms to rip his kingdom apart and take them away. One kingdom was the kingdom of the Assyrians, and the other ones were the Babylonians. We read most about the exile, the time away from Jerusalem, in the kingdom of Babylonians. And if you're not familiar with that, maybe you're familiar with characters of the Bible, like Daniel, he spoke during this time, or Ezekiel, he spoke in this time, or our three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as I'm always reminded of uh, growing up in my church, Shadrach, Meshach, and then uh, one bad Negro um, is in that, which we're going to talk about that. We'll do a study of his character during Black History Month. Um, just joking, he was, he was Jewish. Um, so... So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep going, I promise you. There's so much that came in this head right now. So that was during the time of the exiles. Now, the exiles, after they were, they were kind of cured in such a way that God began to um, restore and reform their worship towards him during that season, that 70-year period, and then they began to come back to Jerusalem. And when they got back to Jerusalem, they built the wall, which was a sign of protection, and then they rebuilt the temple that had been torn down, but there was no glory in the temple. That God's glory didn't shine as it once did. And then something happened. For 400 years, there was silence. No one spoke. And so all they had to go on was everything that the prophets had spoke on. 
And it was then, during this time, that they began to pull out and retell the story of Isaiah 65. And this story was a picture that Isaiah had painted about the coming kingdom and how God was going to restore all of Israel. And so when we read this, we begin to walk through and understand this picture of where God is taking things. And I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on here this morning, only because next week we're going to talk even more about this restored kingdom. But I do believe it helps us understand the picture of the kingdom that is the coming as, as we pray for thy kingdom to come. So Isaiah says, this is what God's going to do. He's going to create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be gladness, to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. That means what Isaiah is trying to do in this picture as he paints it is is, uh, conjure up in the followers of God, the believers of God, and for us, the followers of Jesus, this this yearning for what the king is going to establish and what the king is going to do. And then he begins to talk about how this kingdom is going to reverse some of the ills and some of the poison and some of the brokenness in our own land. As you continue with me in verse 19, he says, No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. Here's what Paul is saying, or excuse me, Paul, we've been with Paul for so many, this is Isaiah talking now. <laughs> um, uh, here, here is what Isaiah is saying. I, Isaiah is saying, all, he's trying to paint a picture and use words, don't, don't, don't read this literally, he's trying to use words from his own age to describe the beauty and goodness of what the king will bring in. And, and I love it, he says there's going to be no more weeping, like no, more, no more crying, and not in the way that we say, dry up your tears, no more crying. Like, meaning there won't be any need to weep. There won't be any need to crowd distress. He goes, the infants, you know, no matter what culture you live in, no matter what time in human history, the death of a baby has always been hard. I know if you've ever been to a funeral of a child, it's, it's, it's hard. Or if you've ever sat with someone who's had a miscarriage or had the stillborn or a couple who's had an abortion who's still dealing with the psychological effects of it, it's hard. And, and he says, and the, the, the old won't die young, right? We always say that, oh, they died young. Here's the reality when it comes to death. People always die early. Death is not something that God intends. Death is not something he's saying, oh, death, is, it's here because of sin, because of the effects of sin. But he says, but in that day, there, there won't be death. And he's communicating, like, the guy who's 100 will be like, oh, he's young, he's 100, Right? And that's not to say that he's ever going to get old or he's going to die. It's just saying he's going to live forever. Like, that's the way it's going to be. Because when it comes to pain and suffering, he's saying it's, it's going to be reversed. Because right now in our world, we know what pain and suffering is like. We, we understand it, even when it's at a distance. Like, even when you yourself hasn't experienced what somebody else has experienced, you understand just at a distance. Let, let me try to describe this. So um, recently, something that has happened in my own life is my brother, and my brother and I, we grew up uh, with the same mother, my dad raised my brother. We have different dads. My dad, my, my brother met his dad maybe once when he was 10, but didn't have any relationship with him. Didn't even seem like his dad wanted a relationship with him. He's just been distant. Well, in the last three or four years, through a matter of circumstances and events, my brother is reconnected with his dad. And he's just kind of getting to know him. My brother's 35 years old. He's a grown man. And reconnecting with his dad, who he's never really known. And through the process, what happened is more recently, his dad ended up getting cancer. 
And his dad lives in Mississippi, and because of the treatment that he wanted, it was in Fresno. And my brother's living in L.A., and he would drive up several weekends, this three-hour drive to get to Fresno, to try to get to know this guy who's his biological father. And I'm distant from this because I've never met this man. I couldn't tell you what he looks like until um, recently, recently last week, uh, he ended up passing away from the cancer. And I knew my brother was going out to the Mississippi for the funeral. There's no part of me that thought about going. There's none of that. I just thought, you know what, he's going to go because he kind of got to know this guy. doesn't really know him, but this is not really his dad because he's never been in his life. It's been distant. Well, yesterday was a funeral, and I called him last night when I was driving home, and I said, hey, how'd it go? And he told me, he goes, you know, not good. I don't know if I've ever heard those two words mentioned out of my brother's mouth. He usually says, ah, it's okay, it's okay. In fact, he started up, it's okay, it's, mm, actually it didn't go very good. And I said, well, why? And he says, well, what I realize is it's hard for it to explain. He goes, I lost it. And he goes, you know me, I tuck everything as deep as possible, but because when, when, when my emotions do come out, I can't control them because I couldn't control it. As I'm sitting there with all these people that I don't even know, um, and yet I'm looking at this man and I'm going, even though you guys may not believe this, and even though I'm not even sure I believe it, my dad died. Like, even though he wasn't around, he was my dad. And just hearing him say that, and he's crying on the phone, and, and mind you, me and my brother don't share emotional moments like this. I'm like, man, I'm kind of coming undone. But even at a distance, I've never seen him, I don't know, but just the reality of where my brother is at 2,000 miles away um, is that that, that, hit, that hit me. And, and I don't care who you are. When you're around pain, the closer you get, the harder it is, even at a distance. So we, 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 we naturally long for that picture that's painting. There's something in us that goes, I want that picture to be true. I want that picture to be that depression no longer will plague my family, that drugs and addiction will no longer plague my family, that these pasts that I have of pain will no longer constantly hunt me, my vices, my issues will no longer hunt me, but there will be a day that God will make all things new. And, and Isaiah begins to paint this picture of that particular kingdom. And he continues here in verse 21. It says, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Um, they shall not build and, and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. This is what he's talking about. We all know that experience where we see people building homes, beautiful homes that they themselves will never be able to live in. People who, who labor for the, the fresh fruit and vegetables that we enjoy, that they themselves, they don't even eat. They can't even eat those things. He says, not in his kingdom. That all of us will be able to work and be able to enjoy the fruits of our labor. It begins to talk about family and how family is restored. It says this, verse 23, they shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. I've only been a dad for six and a half years. My son always tells me he's five and a half. He's actually closer to six, but five and three quarters, I've been a father, Right? And the older my kids get, the more I begin to worry. The more I begin, I wonder if they're going to be like this. Who made fun of them? When I hear, like, somebody made fun of you at school, tell me that kid's parent's name. I'm going to beat them up, right? <laughs> like, you, 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 you care about them, and all of a sudden you have these kids, and you're like, oh, everything can go wrong in this world. <laughs> like, why did we bring you here, right? He says, there, there's, there's not going to be a day where you're going to have to worry about that with your family members. He says this in verse 24, before they call, I will answer, and while they are yet speaking, I will hear. That's a picture of intimacy, of God's going, hey, before you even say anything, I'm like, I already know, right? You had me at hello, is what he's, right? <laughs> he's he's going to be there for us. 
And then, and then like Isaiah, before he wraps it up, is almost as if he forgot. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, the animal kingdom. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together, and the lion shall eat the straw of an ox. Like, he's like, oh, yeah, the animal kingdom, which for me, if he wouldn't have left, if he'd have left that out, I'd been like, I, I wouldn't really. I'm not in the animals in this life, and I don't know if I will be in the next life, but uh, I know we are as people, and I'm getting there. Here's why, right? Here's why we understand that the animal kingdom's off right now. I was at the park yesterday, at the Daily Park. There's two softball fields there, and me and the boys were kind of hitting baseballs. And um, next to us were a group of people playing slosh ball, which doesn't matter what that is. Um, so they're, they're, they're next to the park next to us playing. And these, they had these two pit bulls, and they come around the fence, and they start coming over to where we are. And I'm like, oh, shoot. And you know what pits look like. They look like pits, right? And so I'm, I'm looking at Eli, my youngest, and he's crying, going, ah, because he's looking at Noah, who's doing the same thing. And I know he's doing it because I'm going, ah, right? And these pits are coming, and finally the, this girl, this, like, little beady girl is like, oh, I'll get him. No, you're not. Those dogs will. Anyway, so it's not come yet. And that, like, no, they didn't take, they didn't eat us or anything like that, but gosh, I thought they were. And the new heavens and earth, I will see pits, and somehow I will go, oh, your neck's not as big. Um, there's no chain on it with the lock. I, I, appreciate, I appreciate that. He says, the lion will graze with the lamb. And then he kind of conclu- concludes this in the verse 25 here where he says, and the dust shall be the serpent's food. The point there is going, evil is crushed. Just like we saw in the video there. It's crushed. They shall not hurt or destroy on my holy mountain, says the Lord. He says, that's the picture that, that we have Isaiah painting. That's the picture. Now, if you're like me, you're going, that sounds amazing. But that's not my life, Right? On Friday, a friend of mine invited me to go look at this, at the ASU, ASU Museum. He uh, teaches part-time as a professor there with the architecture school. And he's like, yeah, there's going to be displays of this architect who's from Australia, and you should come. It's going to be the opening of it. It'd be great. So I show up, and, and I'm there, and I'm looking at these homes. And I actually like looking at homes um, built by um, our just I like looking at really clean, modern homes, right? So I'm looking at these pictures. I'm enjoying it. About an hour, I'm like, that's awesome. That's awesome. That's beautiful. But then I, I know what's going to happen. I'm going to walk out of that museum. I'm going to get in my car. And I'm going to go back to my house, right? And I don't live in Australia. And, and none of, none of, my house doesn't look like any of those pictures, right? And it's going, that was a great picture. But man, on my block, it doesn't look like that. In fact, anyways, my house is not that clean. My house is not that, I mean, with right 90-degree angles, and there's not an ocean near my house, and I'm longing for that, right? And I think sometimes when we, hear the, we, we read the picture about the way that God begins to talk about the new heavens and earth, sometimes we can get there. But, and, and that goes from like, well, how do we look at the picture and then getting it to the practice of the kingdom? And I liken it like this. When we understand and have a right picture of what God is doing through the work of Christ, that it begins to bleed or leak into our daily lives. Like, though there really is what we talk about, there's a not yet of the kingdom of God, but there's an already, that those things begin to overlap as, overlap as we begin to look and desire this kingdom. And so I liken it to when we were kids growing up in Southern California, my mother would say every once in a while, hey, we're going to Disneyland on Saturday. And as soon as you heard that you were going to Disneyland, you were excited, even though it was Monday. Even though you had math, yeah, you had a math test today. I don't care. I'm going to Disneyland on Saturday right? You can get in trouble for not cleaning your room. You're going to get, you're going to get disciplined. I don't care. I'm going to Disneyland on Saturday. I mean, like, the daily things that you did that, that somehow the vision, the picture of Disneyland begin to leak into your normal activities. Even the, the things you did begin to remind you of Disneyland. You, you can find yourself on a swing, just swinging back and forth. Wait till I get to Disneyland. I'll be in a teacup. 
right? And, and you begin to look at brochures of Disneyland. You're like, Mickey's going to be there. Donald's going to be there. The princess is going to be there. And I was a little bit more advanced at 10. I was like, the princess might want my number, so I'm going to wear something nice, maybe a sports coat that I've never worn before. All right, something like that, right? And so you, the, the thought of Disneyland in itself begin to bleed into your day. Okay, so what, as we look at the picture, are those practices that we can have? Because the picture of the kingdom that Isaiah gives us begins to um, inspire hope in our lives. But then there's got to be also something that's a practice that begins to sustain that hope, something we can do. And so if you're with me in Isaiah, go ahead and turn to the right to the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 6. And Matthew chapter 6 is the first book of the um, New Testament. And in it right now, as you turn there, Jesus is about to instruct his disciples on what they could be doing while um, following him in his kingdom. Now, as you turn there, I want to give something by the way of warning when we talk about kingdom language. Because oftentimes when we talk about kingdom language, especially younger evangelicals, is that we begin to think that we're going to bring in the kingdom, we're going to usher in the kingdom, we're going to establish the kingdom. And what I want to be able to tell you is, no, you're not. You're not. I, I liken it to when my mom used to say things, we used to say things to my mom like, hey, we're going to get a new car. And she'd always say, we aren't going to get anything. Like, if anything's going to happen, I'm going to do it. And when it comes to the kingdom, we're, we're not doing it. We can be a foretaste, we can be a sign, we can be an example, but we don't bring in the kingdom. For one, that brings us some sense of comfort to, not, to know that we don't have to burden all those things, and, and it's also really healthy uh, theology. In fact, uh, James Davison Hunter, uh, what he begins to talk about as a caution for Christians here um, is this. He says, when Christians participate in the work of world building, they are not, in any precise sense of the phrase, building the kingdom of God. This side of heaven, the culture cannot become the kingdom of God, nor will all the work of Christians in culture evolve into or bring about his kingdom. The establishment of his kingdom in eternity is an act of divine sovereignty and love, and it will only be set in place at the final consummation at the end of time. He says, trust me, God's going to do it. He's going to bring it in. Um, Our part, that's his role, our part primarily. Um, Yes, we can give to the needy, and we can clothe the naked, um, we, we could love our neighbors, we can love our enemies, but the primary way that we could begin, and already, and uh, not yet, meaning when the world is the way it is, in our own neighborhood, the primary thing that we can do to bring that overlap is pray. And that's what Jesus begins to give his disciples. In fact, my whole hope for this morning's message is that we talk about the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom, is that the one thing you walk away with is, oh, here's something I can do. I don't need a bunch of resources for this. I don't need money for this. I don't even need an imagination for this. I could just pray. And so in in, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus begins to disciple his disciples, and he's saying, hey, when you pray, guys, don't pray like the hypocrites. I mean, there was these, like, professional Christian-type people that were professional prayers, and they would go out into the middle of the street, and they would talk all loud, and God's like, don't do that. That's silly. He goes, but instead, why don't you go somewhere else and pray in secret, and your father who sees you in secret, he will reward you, meaning he will be your reward. And then in chapter 6, verse 9, he says this, pray then like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Many of us know this prayer. We could recite it, uh, we memorized it, not in the ESV translation, but usually in the King James translation. But it's in that prayer that Jesus is inviting us to say, hey, pray thy kingdom come. 
Meaning the prayers of God's people begin to reflect more of the kingdom than even just our activity. It's not to say that we don't get to work, but I'm saying I think that we are probably most likely to be a people that would get to work before we even pray. We're pragmatic people. Many of us are educated people. We, we've, we've been giving the, getting all the uh, results back from that survey we took, and it's something like almost 50% of our people have a college degree, which is insane. What are you guys doing, right? <laughs> there, there's, there, there's this sense where we can do it. We can build it. And, and, and Jesus is saying, how about I just invite you to the most, most amazing thing you can do in the not yet times to bring the already and just pray? Just pray. And, and, and here's what Jesus says here as so we look at this prayer. First, he says, our Father in heaven. I mean, the first thing is you've got to understand who you belong to. Now, you belong to a father. You don't just belong to a judge. You just don't belong to a creator. You belong to a father. I mean, it is, it's immediately relational. That means to enter into the kingdom that you have to understand by entry into the kingdom. And your interest is an Im- entrance is an invitation by somebody. Not an it, not a system, but someone that Jesus is saying, my father becomes your father. By the way, um, the original here is here, Jewish people never referred to God as father. Never. They didn't even really want to say the name of God. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 not, not, not in my kingdom. And so before we can even talk about this type of prayer, we got to talk about what does it mean to pray to enter into the kingdom. And at the very essence and the very heart of the kingdom in itself is two things here, repentance and belief. The way that you, you, you gain or receive God as your father is repentance and belief. The way that you enter into the kingdom of God is by repentance and belief. Jesus in the Gospel of Mark says, the kingdom of God is at hand. And then what does he say after that? Repent and believe. And here's what this looks like. Repentance is you're going one way. And that is you're pursuing the ideology of this world, uh, the different worldviews and philosophies, or anything you, you could pursue outside of Jesus. Even good things outside of Jesus. And repentance is the awakening, the quickening of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ in your life that you begin to realize by God's um, presence in your life that there's another way, and that way is in Christ. And so repentance is a Greek word, metanoia, that means having a change, a change of heart, a change of belief, and ultimately a change of action. So repentance and then belief is believing in who God says he is, believing in his son Jesus Christ who has come to die for your sins, to take upon the penalty and the judgment of your sins and to give you freely an abundant life in him that you may live with him in an established kingdom in a material world all because of the work that he's done as your loving father. And this kingdom prayer for that, guys, there's two, point, there's two points that cannot be removed. Repentance and faith cannot be separated. As Christians, sometimes we're good at calling people to repent, meaning change your behaviors, change your attitudes, but we don't call them to belief. And so what we end up discipling is we make really good Christian people who go to Christian churches and do a lot of good Christian things and don't have the life and love and the passion and the motivation of loving God because they haven't really been told how loved they are in God. They've been just told to be better, to be good, to stop doing that and do more of this. And you don't even need the Holy Spirit to do those things. On the other side, there's a group of people who love to talk about belief or God's grace without the need of life change. And so it's, yeah, you, you pray to prayer, then you're good. Do whatever you want to do. You don't have to listen to God. You can do whatever you want to do. Who cares? You don't have to change your ethics. But when it comes into the kingdom of seeing God as our Father, we know what it's like to have family values, family traditions, family traits. We know certain families, and you can go, oh, that family, they're about this. That family, they're about that. Hey, watch out for that family. They kick butt, right? When it comes to God as our Father, there's repentance and belief. In fact, repentance can only flow from belief. That we first see who God is and what God has done in our life. And our life begins to radically transform over a period of time called discipleship. 
that this process called discipleship. So we believe in the life and love of Jesus. We don't separate those things. And so that's how you enter into the kingdom is repentance and belief. And here, how you grow in the kingdom, repentance and belief. We never get past those two things. So when Jesus begins to give us the practice of the kingdom, it's a constant prayer that let God bring about the conviction of the Holy Spirit in our life when we are being distracted, when we're drifting, that we may believe again afresh in the work of Jesus Christ in our life. That's how we enter in the kingdom. That's how we grow as a king in the kingdom. Well, Jesus begins to continue here, and he says, okay, now your kingdom come and your will be done, or thy kingdom come, will be titled the message. What he's saying here is this is like the easiest prayer. You know where you get in the moment and you want to pray for somebody, but you don't know all the facts, you don't know all the information? Can't you just pray, Lord, can your kingdom come in this situation as it is in heaven? That's exactly what Jesus is inviting us to here. He's saying, um, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, in my family as it is in heaven, in addiction as it is in heaven, in the church as it is in heaven, in Tempe as it is in heaven, in my industry as it is in heaven. Lord, would you begin to allow um, the leaking of this picture of your kingdom and the power of your kingdom in this particular area and begin to pray towards those things? Begin to pray continuously towards to those things. Well, then Jesus gets even more personal here of what this practice of the kingdom looks like through prayer. As he says, give us this day our daily bread. And that picture there is back in Deuteronomy where God's people were, was without food. And God provided food for them and something what was called manna. And every single day God provided this manna. And he said, listen, don't try to save the manna. It's only good for a day. It's going bad. Um, tomorrow, trust that I'm going to bring you more manna from the sky. It's going to rain down. And, you know, you can just picture the Israelites going, what time is the manna man coming? Has he come by your house yet? Right? Because they're hungry. But every single day they, they, they begin to long for and look for, and more importantly, they begin to rely on God to provide. When Jesus begins to talk about here, pray um, for daily bread, it's far more praying that we would always rely on God. Yes, to provide for our physical needs. We know that he's provided ultimately in our spiritual need in giving us Jesus. But that constant reliance, I think this is a conviction for us. You know why? Because we're often people that don't rely on God daily. Like, there's moments in our life, right? Like, back when I first believed in Jesus, back in my college experience. Man, when this tragedy happened, God showed up. And those are incredible moments that I never want to discredit. But that daily, ongoing, I need you, Lord, I need you. I mean, that, I don't know if we have that. I think we treat our relationship with God like we treat a relationship between gas and a car. Like, we go to the gas station when we need it. That light's flashing. It's telling us we're going to run out of gas. And so we show up, and we fill up the gas tank. And then we never go back to the gas station, you know, until we need it again. Until we need it again. I think when it comes to our relationship with God, what happens is we, we get something from God. We needed him. We needed him to show up. We needed him to show his presence. And in that moment, as God began to show his presence, we kind of go away to our own thing. We begin to trust in our own selves. We begin to trust in our own intellect. We begin to trust in the ability of what we can do instead of even in the little things we do, saying, Lord, Lord thank you. You know what that looks like practically? It's waking up in the morning and saying, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Like, that's it, Lord. Here's the things I got to do today. Would you be with me in it? And it's a constant reliance on him. Part of the kingdom prayer is not always this big, grand, cosmic thing as it is just going, Lord, give me the grace of repentance and faith. May your kingdom come in this area as it is in heaven. Lord, would you be for me my daily bread? And Jesus continues here in verse 12. He says, forgive us of our debts as we have also forgiven um, our debtors, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, here is a confession of sin. And 
don't hear this saying every day you need to pray for salvation. That's not what he's saying. You are saved or justified, made right before God once and always. It's not a momentary thing. It happens in a moment and it lasts forever. This is far more relational. This is in, in the way that a husband or a wife will confess sin to one another. Um, it, when I confess sin to my wife or you confess sin to your spouse, you know that they're going to forgive you, but you confess anyway. Well, maybe you don't know that they're going to forgive you, actually. I don't want to be presumptuous. You hope that they will. So you, you confess, though, because relationally. The relationally. So when we confess our sin to the Lord, we're confessing and we're reminded that his grace forgives us. That's why we take communion every week. We're just reminded, you know what, God always forgives me. God is always gracious toward me. His blood really is enough. And then when you reciprocate that love to people, it says now you forgive others. And that's harder. And it's really harder because we don't really take into account sometimes the way God has forgiven us. So when we pray or practice this kingdom prayer, it's saying, Lord, help me remember how you forgave me. Because it's hard for me to forgive others. Because what we do with others, we excuse others. We don't forgive others. We say, oh, it's okay. It's not okay. God's not on the cross going, it's okay. <laughs> right? No. He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. And, and, and forgiveness is bearing upon the weight on yourself and not the other and not exacting payment from that person. It, it is absorbing. And you go, that's really hard. That's really painful. Exactly. We know it's very hard and we know it's very painful because the most forgiving person in the world, he died on the cross for it. And he absorbed the, the judgment and wrath of God for every single person in this world that would believe in him. And so when we say, Father, forgive us of our sins, we are reminding ourselves that the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of God, we don't understand unless Jesus says, and die for us, and sacrifice for us. And the way, way that we reciprocate that kingdom in prayer and in an action is by forgiving others. And then what Jesus does in concluding this, this section, he says in verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The picture here is that not that God would ever lead you in temptation. James says that God will never tempt you. But we are easily tempted people. And there's always things that get in our way of seeing God. Sin in itself will always begin to blur lines. Sin in itself will always be able to blur our vision. It's like driving with dirty windshield wipers. When it rains here in Arizona, which we've never used our windshield wipers, all of a sudden we go, windshield, where they? Oh, there, there it is, right? And then you go, that was worse, <laughs> right? <laughs> and that's what sin does, is that sin gets in. And we can see a little bit, but it's not nearly as clear. And so what we're praying in that is, Lord, part of the kingdom is, and my own heart is going, Lord, let me not be led astray. Because we are prone to wander. I don't care who you are. I don't care what your profession is. I don't care how, how much of the Bible you know. I don't care how many Hail Marys you've done. I don't care how many Hail Marys you've caught. I don't, it doesn't matter, right? <laughs> we all are prone to wander. And he's saying, Lord, will you deliver me? And deliver me from evil, meaning that serpent and the effects of that serpent and my heart are real. And the effects of sin and injustice in this world is real. That we happen to live in a world that though we look at that picture of the kingdom, that what we need in the world right now where there's so much not yet, we need the practice of prayer. We need to know that our God needs us. We need our God to deliver us. We need our God to forgive us. We need our God to bring his kingdom here as it is in heaven. We need to know that our God is a father who desperately loves us and who desperately desires to be with us. And so it's, it's, it's in that, actually, that I begin that we should probably lean into Advent more. So, so often, Advent begins, it begins to be a season about these beautiful things and candy canes and lights, and it's, it's a lot of fun. But Advent is about God saying, look at the world in which I created. Look how sin has affected it, and watch how I'm about to redeem it. There, there's a gal, um, African-American girl in Minnesota, um, and I believe she's like a social psychologist, but she begins to talk about Advent in ways that resonates with me. 
Um, her name's Christina Cleveland, and, and she says this about Advent. She says, I sigh with relief when I'm reminded that Advent isn't what so many of us think it is. We've been tricked by chocolate-filled Advent calendars and blissful Christmas pageants that gloss over the very real evil that makes the Messiah's coming so very necessary, so very loving, and so very heroic. Advent isn't about our best world. It's about our worst world. Advent is an invitation to plunge into the deep, dark waters of our worst world, knowing that when we resurface for air, we will encounter the hopeful, hovering spirit of God. For when we dive into the depths of our worst world, we reach a critical point at which our chocolate and pageants no longer satiate our longing for hope. And we are liberated by this realization. Indeed, the light of the true hope is found into the mist, in the midst of darkness. I love that. Because though we have a picture of the kingdom, which can inspire hope, and then we can the practice of the kingdom, which in itself could begin to sustain hope, um, there, there's ultimately, that's meaningless if we don't have the person of the kingdom. Meaning if we look deep into the darkness of our own hearts, and we begin to engage deeply into the problems of the world, if we go deep down that rabbit hole, the only thing that we ultimately hope, we pray like crazy that God himself is the one that's going to be able to lift our face. And we know that's true when we see the light of hope, when we see the light of the world and the person of the kingdom, namely in Jesus Christ. That meaning if we just have a picture and a practice, what we have is something to look to and some religious activity, but we don't have someone to worship. But in the person of the kingdom, ultimately in the person of Jesus, we have someone to worship someone to redeem us, someone to save us, someone who to be, what the psalm says, a lifter of our heads. And we know this to be true because we look at the life of Jesus. In fact, this is seen clearly in the darkest of moments in Jesus' life is when you begin to read in John chapter 13, there's this moment where Jesus loses his friend Lazarus, which we all know, funerals are the darkest places for us to be oftentimes. And as he loses his friends, his sisters come to him, um, um, Lazarus' sisters, and they go, Jesus, Jesus, we know he's going to be raised up on the last day, you know, on the resurrection. And Jesus paused, and he goes, I am the resurrection. And oftentimes we gloss over that and go, oh, yeah, the resurrection, Easter, yeah, it's going to be great. Can't wait to wear a new suit, right? And then, but what he's talking about is something far more than that, because when you understand resurrection from a Hebrew perspective, the Hebrews saw the resurrection and the coming kingdom as the same thing that they believed that the resurrection in itself would be this huge event in which God would make all things new, that what was painted in Isaiah, what was written about in Isaiah 11, what was written about in, in Revelation 21, that those things would begin to come true, and they're saying, yeah, on that day we know. And what Jesus is saying is the hope, the grace, the love, the peace, the mercy, all of those things you're looking for, I'm it. It's not just an event. Everything is in me. That everything that you long for is in Jesus. Every beauty that you look for is in Jesus. Everything that we have here is but a shadow, but the substance is namely God's son, Jesus Christ, the king. He goes, Martha, Mary, redemption, don't you see? I'm what you're looking for. The lying lamb with the lamb, yes. The old not dying, the young not dying, yes. Those are all implications of me and what I'm doing. And what does Jesus say to Mary and Martha? He says, everybody who looks to me will live. Though he dies, meaning though they experience death, and they experience so much of the not yet here, so much of the tears, so much of the I don't know what's next, so much of the apathy, so much of the brokenness, so much for the unbelief, so much for the doubt, all of those things, because though they experience those things, they will have life in me. That the person of the kingdom is Jesus Christ. Because one, the picture, it can inspire hope. And the practice can sustain it. 
But Jesus Christ is the only one who can embody it. And everything that we want in hope and everything that we want in the kingdom is all wrapped up in the king. Amen? And so as we pray this season of Advent in our own hearts, the biggest thing we can do is pray. And the most clear prayer that we have from Jesus is to pray, thy kingdom come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great grace that's been extended to us in Jesus. God, we want to never make light of, of homelessness, of mental uh, incapacity, and of disease, and all the plagues, and tornadoes, and death, and family dysfunction, and, and addictions, and, and all the things that we experience, Lord, at a distant or even close to our own hearts. All the things, Lord, that we want to kick in our own life, the vices that we have, Lord, that in the midst of those things, Lord, all the things that are not yet, that we know that there is something that's already. And what's already is in Christ that you have made us a new creation. That what's already in Christ is that you are pouring out your Holy Spirit, that you are pouring out your love, that you promise to reconcile all things. God, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear all of the things of Jesus that we would see he is the great redeemer who has not just called us to do something, but has done it on our behalf, that we may enter into his life, enter into your family, Lord, and be adopted as children who could praise you and worship you. And so as we live in the tension of this world, of the birth of Christ, and then waiting for the full consummation of all things, for the death for the penalty of sin and his resurrection to waiting when our bodies will be resurrected in which we can see you face to face. Lord, would you cultivate in us a longing and desire of you that has been far deeper than we've ever had. Help us to taste and see that you were good and drink deep of the waters of grace in which have been extended to us. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to give you a moment to just go ahead with your heads bowed. Have a moment with Jesus, the person of the kingdom. That moment could be a moment of confession. That moment could be a moment where he would actualize himself to you, maybe believe in him for the first time. That moment could just be a moment of adoration, of thanking him for who he is and what he's doing. Whatever it is, let it be for you, between you and God, in just a moment I'll come back and lead us in a time of response.